Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Orthopedic Surgery Podcast, a curated series of interviews and discussions highlighting the three shields of orthopedic surgery at Mayo Clinic, clinical practice, research, and education. Welcome back to the Mayo Clinic Orthopedic Surgery Podcast. It's your host, John Barlow, and I'm really excited about our guest today. Today, I'm welcoming Joaquin Sanchez-Sotelo. He did his medical training in Spain and then did hip and knee arthroplasty and shoulder and elbow arthroplasty training uh, fellowships here at Mayo Clinic. He's been here ever since. He uh, ran the shoulder and elbow fellowship up until very recently and is now the division chair of shoulder and elbow at Mayo Clinic. And as you know, internationally and nationally well-known for his research and leadership. And most importantly to me, he's been a mentor of mine. So I'm extremely excited to have him today. Welcome, Joaquin. Thank you, John. What a pleasure to be here. I'm excited today to talk about a topic that's near and dear to my heart, and I think to yours as well, Joaquin, which is anatomic total shoulder arthroplasty. This is something that um, uh, we oftentimes get patients with arthritis. Can you start talking about shoulder arthritis and what is your initial decision-making and what is the role for non-surgical management, let's say steroid injections for these uh, patients, or do you kind of accelerate them into arthroplasty? No, I think something interesting about glenohumeral osteoarthritis is that sometimes we will see patients that have terrible looking x-rays, but they don't have too much pain. So for me, something that helps me tremendously is to apply the so-called subjective shoulder value. So if a patient has terrible looking x-rays, but he or she tells me my SSB is 80%, I'm going to think that the patient is probably not ready for arthroplasty yet, may have some pain, not sleeping at night, but not ready yet. Another patient may have more moderate changes on the x-ray, but if the SSB is 20%, I may be inclined to offer arthroplasty sooner. So in terms of out treatment uh, for these patients before surgery, I think we tend to forget about the potential value of giving them a good course of pain medication, including Tylenol and non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. And I do use corticosteroid injections. I know that they have not the best press, especially in the setting of rotator cuff disease. Um, and I know that potentially they can increase the risk of infection if we were to do arthroplasty soon after the injection. But for some patients, is really, really beneficial. So I don't abuse them, but I use them in my practice when patients are symptomatic but not ready for an arthroplasty yet. That's great. Do you have a, do you have a cutoff or, or time frame from which... Uh, point you would do a, a shoulder arthroplasty and then second question do you have a limit for the number of injections or let's say patients with bone loss will you kind of steer them away from uh, injections yeah i think um, in terms of the time frame i'm recommending my patients currently not to have an arthroplasty within the following three months after an injection and that is based on data that i don't fully trust because the source of the data uh, is not really well vetted but that's what i'm doing currently and it turns out that most of the times my surgical calendar is such that it takes three or four months to get a spot anyways. So that works out well. In terms of the number, I'm okay to do one or twice in a given year, but but don't more than that. And uh, you bring up a great point. If a patient has progressive bone loss, I try to recommend them to consider surgery sooner rather than later because otherwise they can compromise the outcome for real. That's great. So. Uh, let's talk about the patient who's really failed extensive non-surgical management injections or otherwise and has uh, severe or end-stage arthritis. Uh, we've seen a trend recently for increasing reverse total shoulder arthroplasty. 
um, uh, throughout the country and maybe the world. Uh, do you have thoughts about uh, the role for anatomic in reverse total shoulder arthroplasty? As a specific example, for the patient with a cuff intact shoulder, is a well done anatomic beat a well done reverse shoulder arthroplasty in your hands? What do you think? Yeah, that's a great question. And I do think that because reverse is more forgiving in the operating room, there's always the temptation to do more and more reverses. But I think for patients with primary OA and a concentric pattern of glenoid bone loss and interrotator cuff, I think anatomic arthroplasty outperforms reverse. So if you were to compare 100 patients that had a perfectly done anatomic and 100 patients that had a perfectly done reverse at one year, I bet you that on average, anatomy would outperform reverse in terms of range of motion and the feeling of having a more normal shoulder. Um, and regarding age, you know, um, I don't like to use age as an indication for surgery. So I must confess that I have done anatomic arthroplasties in people that are 94 and 96, and I have done reverses in people that are 37 or 26 because the pathology for me trumps age. We just published a recent study that reported on the outcome of anatomic all polyethylene shoulder arthroplasty in patients over the age of 70, and we had almost no failure. So I would argue that the older patients actually are less active and as such, maybe they actually wear their glenoid component less. So for me, age is not a major factor. Yeah, and I think that's interesting because that group of patients, especially the older and thinner women are the ones I really worry about uh, scapular spine fractures and otherwise from reverse. So it's nice if the anatomic works well. How about minor cuff issues like bursal sided fraying of the rotator cuff or um, a similar patient, let's say, a patient with inflammatory arthropathy or rheumatoid arthritis, does that push you toward reverse? So in patients with primary osteoarthritis where I find some frame of the rotator cuff intraoperatively, that doesn't change my decision making. As long as I can get the components well positioned and the soft tissue balance is adequate, I would still do an anatomic. Inflammatory arthritis is different because if it is very active, it does have the potential, I believe, to compromise the rotator cuff further and further. So in those patients, if I saw concerning calf pathology, um, meaning a high grade partial thickness there, I may actually have a lower threshold to do reverse arthroplasty. But as you know, because you published the landmark study on arthroplasty for rheumatoid arthritis, patients with anatomic total shoulder and hemiarthroplasty do well if they are properly selected. Yeah, I think it's interesting because some of those patients, even with uh, rotator cuffs that don't look perfect, are pretty well compensated. And it's hard to know if they're going to do well with an anatomic. And uh, with the osteopenia, you worry about some issues with the reverse as well. Uh, one of the things, one of my favorite things, shifting gears a little bit is uh, having chat, chatting with you is you've done a lot of industry uh, work on design and implant design. And, and I think you're very thoughtful about the history or where we've come from with, with shoulder arthroplasty. Can you talk a little bit about the reemergence of augmented anatomic glenoids and uh, particularly with emphasis on some of the, the history from Mayo Clinic with uh, one of your mentors, Bob Cofield, and what he taught us about augmented anatomic glenoids? Yeah, people tend to forget that Dr. Cofield was a pioneer in many things, including the use of augmented components. And in all honesty, at, in, at long-term follow-up, those patients didn't do perfect. But I think part of the reason was that he was truly using that component in the worst possible situation. So patients that today we get a reverse, yes or yes, back then where there was no reverse, they were getting an augmented component. 
I think in 2021, there is for sure a role for augmented components. What I find interesting though, is that when I talk to friends of mine over coffee or after a meeting, not from the podium, most people that I know shy away from using the components with the very thick augments. So I think there is the fear that having an inclined plane that is very subject to shear may lead to catastrophic failure of those components over time. So a moderate augment, I think is beneficial for some patients for sure to restore the joint line and correct deformity without sacrificing too much bone. That, that's for sure. You have to be careful with a patient that has a stiffness because a stiff joint actually benefits from medializing the joint line. So if a patient is stiff before surgery and you use an augmented component and really stuff the joint to what would be normal for a shoulder, the soft tissues may not be able to handle it and you may have some stiffness. So I think you have to just think about your case carefully, but there's no question that these components do have a role today in 2021. That's great. And I've, I've really liked using them in my practice too, I think for the smaller B2 glenoids. So I'm going to really put the screws to you. What's your cutoff for subluxation or cutoff for inclination, uh, let's say of the B2 or bone loss on the posterior aspect of the glenoid for which you're doing augmented anatomic, let's say 65-year-old person, intact rotator cuff, B2 glenoid. Do you have a cutoff or um, how do you make that decision? Yeah, so I have migrated to using a pre-op planning software and I think about it as a tool, not as a religion. So some individuals that I know, they will plan something and whatever the planning software says they are going to do, regardless of anything that happens in the OR. And I don't think that is accurate, but it does help you understand how the case may go. So I don't think you can consider one parameter in isolation. What I do is try to hit my targets. So for anatomic, my target is 100% sitting if I can, or 95% or 90%, like almost the whole component is supported by bone, provided that I don't get my version in excess of maybe 10 or 12 degrees, and my inclination um, between 10 degrees of superior and 10 of inferior. So if I can hit those three parameters, then I'm going to do an anatomic. If I can't, then I move to a reverse. I think that's great. And I, uh, similar for me, I think if you really get into the big wedges, 35 degree wedge, you really got to be thoughtful about it. And it's hard to get those. It feels like a real cliff on the back there with the head and you worry about posterior subluxation. Let's shift gears from one religious topic to the other. So from <clears throat> augmented anatomics to stemless and stemmed shoulder arthroplasty, lots of uh, surgeons say this is a solution that we didn't need. And uh, there's, there's no role for this stemless implant for me i've sort of liked using them to get the head perfectly positioned in space um what do you think about it what's the role of stemless arthroplasty is it here to stay and maybe uh comments on what percentage of patients you think that you do anatomic on would be candidates for a stemless arthroplasty yeah i may be wrong john but i think that the stemless arthroplasty will basically take over the market of anatomic total shoulder in the next decade because we all understand the importance of bone preservation in orthopedic surgery the challenge with the stemless arthroplasty is that because there is no stem, your alignment completely depends on your cut. And if your cut is completely freehand without any assistance, no guides, no other tools, I see that the lower volume surgeons may have a tendency for implant malposition. When you have a stem prosthesis, even if you do a poor cut in barus or valgus, the stem will go, is going to guide you to the right position and that doesn't happen with the stemless. But once we have the tools in the operating room to get the stemless position perfect in every patient, my prediction is that it will be the way to go. 
Yeah, I think that's interesting. As we've looked at a series of stemless, certainly loosening doesn't seem to be a concern. So that part is nice. And I think we've seen a bimodal uh, distribution in the studies where some of the stemless are the best positioned arthroplasties, but in some series there's a real scatter and you can you can have really malpositioned components with stemless, maybe something like uh, what we saw with the resurfacing arthroplasty in years past. So something that I think both of us are interested in, we'll continue to look at and study, but I think uh, certainly has a, in my opinion, has a role moving forward. Let's shift gears one more time. So as we talk to shoulder surgeons and the legends of sh shoulder surgery, they've always said it's a soft tissue operation and anatomic total shoulder arthroplasty really um, depends on a functional and strong subscapularis. What's your current management for the subscapularis, both in how you take it down and then how do you protect it afterwards? That's a very good question. And I'm not sure I have you know, the final answer. If you look at level one evidence, every single time that people have compared the three basic techniques, which are osteotomy of the lesser tuberosity, PL, or tenotomy, they are essentially identical in terms of outcome. So I think every surgeon can choose to do whatever he or she prefers. I prefer tenotomy. And the reason for that is uh, threefold. I think it's a slightly faster, uh, which I think helps with other parts of the operation and possibly to decrease the infection rate. I think it's very reliable in terms of um, exposure and, and repair as well. Um, and I haven't seen a major problem in my practice, but if I have a patient that has a severe internal rotation contracture, I would favor doing a peel. And the peel is more forgiving. So if I am training, um, a resident or a fellow that is just starting and I'm not sure that he or she is going to take the Swiss down properly throughout anatomy, appeal is very, very difficult to mess up and it will allow you also to advance the superscapillaries when you do the repair and possibly gain some external rotation that way. In terms of protection, I typically start passive range of motion at day one or day two, but again, there are some patients where I will slow or avoid motion for six weeks, like we do for rotator cuff repairs. So if my tenotomy wasn't perfect or my repair is maybe not perfect either, then I would lock them down. And I have noticed that those patients don't tend to get stiff. So maybe we should actually mobilize everyone for the first six weeks like we do with rotator cuff tears. Yeah, and I really, I really worry about the subscap a lot. And I think it's such a binary operation. If that subscap heals and is strong, the outcome is really, really good. And that shoulder works well. So uh, I and um, several surgeons who, uh, like you said, maybe over coffee discuss things, uh, are more liberally slowing down their patients to protect that subscapularis, especially if, if they're worried about the repair. And a lot of people I know just keep them totally still for six weeks. And most of those patients seem to get their motion back. So certainly a few schools of thought in terms of that. Let's say the patient who has early, you have early concerns about subscapularis. Is there much of a role for early exploration? This is something that occasionally comes up is, let's say a patient looks like they're subluxating and you're worried about an injury after total shoulder. Are you doing much exploration or is the cat out of the bag a little bit? It's time, time to go on for a reverse total shoulder arthroplasty. Yeah, the challenge with that, John, is that at least in my practice, I tend not to pick them up until it is too late. So I typically see my patient for the first time after surgery, six weeks postoperatively. And at that time, they are barely coming out of immobilizer. And I don't do a very, very aggressive examination on strength because they're just starting. So most patients do well. And the few that have subscapularized failure will come back to see me unexpectedly three, four, five months later because they are not doing well. And by then, like you just mentioned, the cat 
is out of the bag. So I find myself that the super scapularized failures that I have to deliver to the operating room, which I have a few like everyone else, end up getting converted to a reverse arthroplasty. The exception may be for those who do a lesser tuberculosis. If you see a displacement on your x-ray at week number six, maybe you can go after it and you will get bone-to-bone -bone healing. But you have to think in the mindset of a non-union at that stage. So you have to really prepare the bone, maybe then add bone graft, incredible fixation, and maybe then you have a chance. Yeah, that's great. So um, really super helpful stuff here, Joaquin. I'd like to kind of summarize what we talked about and uh, then uh, leave you with a few moments to kind of update us on what you think is the next generation of shoulder arthroplasty. Where Where is the field heading? I think it's a really exciting time to be a shoulder surgeon. Uh, they've probably said that forever, but it feels like an exciting time for us to be shoulder surgeons. Between um, having new um, and redesigned anatomic augmented glenoid components and stemless shoulder replacements, which is really advancing the field. We talked a little bit about um, preoperative templating, the critical importance of preoperative templating in these tools that we now have that can help us to do the surgery before uh, we get in the operating room and really be thoughtful and critical of exactly what we're doing at the time of surgery, including even guides occasionally to get uh, things just perfectly right. Sounds like um, both of us agree. Uh, well done anatomic total shoulder arthroplasty is an operation that we shouldn't be getting rid of and will not be replaced by reverse total shoulder arthroplasty, but there's a lot of things we have to do to get that just right, particularly paying careful attention to your preoperative indications and then the subscapularis management. Where do you think we are in the next five, 10, 15 years? Where's the future of shoulder arthroplasty and anatomic shoulder arthroplasty, Joaquin? I would agree with you that this is a very, very exciting time to be a shoulder arthroplasty surgeon in particular. And like you said, anatomic arthroplasty is here to stay, but we need to get better. So for me, the three things that I hope will happen are, number one, as we are more meticulous about what we want to aim in terms of glenoid component position, and also as we use more stemless and short stem arthroplasties, we need better tools to execute the operation. So what I want to see is that we surgeons are given the tools that can be a guide, it can be a robot, it can be navigation, it can be mixed reality, so that our component implantation is perfect. Now that we have components that will not self-guide their position. Number two, I think we have to still find the holy grail of component design for an anatomic glenoid component, because it's somewhat silly to think that in 2021, we're still using a all polyethylene cemented component like the channel hip arthroplasty, and we have to go past that. And number three, with the combination of better tools for execution of the operation, we can truly become um, subescapularis preserving in our exposure, which I think at this point has been tried without complete success, partly because the tools that we need to do the operation are just too large. But you can imagine how if you did the operation with a robot and you use only a burr as your end effect of tool, it may be possible to do the whole bone preparation through the cuff interval, and then patients could basically ditch the sling in a couple of days, and we never have to talk about subscapular failures anymore because you never took it down. I look forward to that future. You've really thrown down the gauntlet. We got a lot of work left to do, so um, it's an exciting uh, field to be in. Thanks so much for joining me, Joaquin. Thank you, John. Yeah.